If you've met Christ, thank him right now for his precious blood. And if you've received the blood of the Messiah as a payment for your sin and you're out of fellowship, confess your sins to him for he is righteous and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're not sure that you've met Christ, ask him today to speak to you. Our Father, you said to Adam that from any tree in the garden you may eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that he would eat, you promised he would die. And indeed he did. On the inside, spiritually, on the outside, he began to age physically. And you warned us that if this problem is not fixed before we leave this life, we will meet you in a third kind of death, eternal death. But thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you what you shouted all the way through the rivers of blood in the Old Covenant, that the life is in the blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And thank you that all of those sacrifices prefigured the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who would take away our sins. Thank you that you forgive us when we put our faith where you put our sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for bearing our sin in your own body on the cross all of the thefts, all of the adulteries, all of the lies, all of the anger, everything. You bore the wrath that we deserve. And thank you that you were declared to all men everywhere that you are Lord when you were raised from the dead. And we are so privileged to be called children of God through faith in him. Thank you for your unfailing, everlasting love with which you love us when we come to you through him. Help us never to be ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. Father, I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice that right now they would ask you to use them in this coming year to bring at least one person into the kingdom. Father, it is amazing to me that you would enlist us in sharing the greatest news this world has ever heard. Help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel. Thank you for your word this morning, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We come in humility, dependent on the spirit within us whom you've sent us to be our teacher. We pray and ask that he would help us to see truth and not just to see and hear it, but to be willing to apply it. I pray, Father, for all those who are listening, those on our Grays campus, those in Graniteville, those in the Bluffton Hilton Head campus, and we ask that as we, as one church, meet in many locations, that you would bless every campus in the coming year, that we would see growth numerically and spiritually. Thank you that numbers matter to you because they represent people for whom Jesus Christ died. I ask you this morning, Father, for your help, 
that you would fill me and anoint me and use me and help me to rightly divide the word of truth. And I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. But today we're going to push the pause button for about three weeks because this is the first day our new campus in Grays, South Carolina has opened. And we don't want them to walk into the middle of the bold judgments, so they are going to take the very first three sermons that we did on the bold judgments, and they are listening to them, and then hopefully by the first week in February, they'll be live and in sync, and all the wiring will be done, and they'll be live with us on Sunday morning. But this gives me an opportunity to address some issues that God has really burdened me with that I feel like we need to hear as His people. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you habitually hear of two groups of people that are mentioned, elders and deacons. And those are actually the only two remaining offices in the New Testament church. And so Paul writes to the overseers or the elders and the deacons who are at the church in Philippi. But with hundreds of new people in the last seven years, which was the last time I addressed this issue from a different text, but nonetheless, I feel the need to help us to be clear on what an elder is and what a deacon is. So those are two topics we're going to cover in subsequent weeks. Now, if you find 1 Timothy, it's a part of a trilogy of books that we typically refer to as the pastoral epistles. First and 2 Timothy in the book of Titus, that really give us a picture of how God's church is to run and operate. 1 Timothy 3, I want to begin in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." 1 Timothy is critically important. It is incredibly relevant and real, and it is relevant and real because it is the revelation of God. And it is revelation that God gives us so that we can know how to live as His people and how we can function as a local assembly. And it seems like the Apostle Paul has visited our churches, has sat in our homes, has gone to our places of employment, when he writes a letter like this. And in this short letter, he really addresses issues where we live every single day. He's not asking and answering questions that no one is asking. He's giving real solutions to real problems. I recently read an extensive study that our government did on the health of the American family. A number of Christians in different organizations commented on it. One particular group wrote this as a preface to the government report. John and Mary Smith are getting a divorce. Smith's frequent business trips and long work hours were a source of friction. Despite his frequent absences, 
He was upset when his wife announced that she was going back to work, especially when she said it would mean that Grandpa Smith would have to go to a nursing home. Tensions in the Smith household increased when their oldest daughter got divorced and moved back home with their two young boys. Then the youngest daughter left home to live with her boyfriend, and just recently the son dropped out of college and joined a religious commune. This fictional family pictures similar scenarios being played out in millions of real households across the nation. Caught in the middle of broad social and economic changes, American families are finding it increasingly difficult to cope with their problems. Rapidly changing values are creating uncertainties and doubts in parents and children. Traditional notions of parental authority and responsibility are being questioned. Old standards on sexual conduct in and out of marriage are breaking down. Men and women's roles in the home and in the workforce are being redefined. Now, all the way through the report, government statistics are given, and it was noted that our own government admits that they do not know what some of the solutions are for the decaying American family. Listen, as the family goes, so goes the nation. And when the family falls apart, the nation begins to disintegrate as well, and history documents that. In fact, many of the so-called experts They think the answer is more education, but it's not working. So what is the answer? And what does that have to do with elders in the local assembly? Absolutely everything. Because we need leaders in the church today who can model healthy families, who can help people to see what God has said. The church, the Bible-believing church, the true church, has real answers. And that should not cause us to be boastful, but to be humble. That ought to motivate us not to be a part of the problem, but a part of the solution. And so we need leaders, and Paul recognized that, and he told Timothy that you just don't find warm bodies, you find people who are qualified. Now, if you remember, First and Second Timothy comes at the end of Paul's life. And years before, he met a group of elders on a beach from the city of Ephesus. And he had prophesied of what would happen some years after his departure. And at this point, Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. But years before, Paul warned, and from Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And so 1 Timothy, among other things, becomes a corrective epistle to mend some of the doctrinal tears that had come into the church. And so Paul will say in chapter 3 of this letter, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. The church is to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And among some of the doctrinal errors that Paul is dealing with concerns the role of women in the local assembly. And so in the prior paragraph, Before chapter 3, here in verses 9 through 15, he deals with the matter and the issues of the role that women should play in the local church. And in these seven verses, he gives a very comprehensive treatment of what women are to do and what they're not to do. 
For instance, he said, a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. She cannot be a pastor. And in the paragraph that will follow, he is going to give exclusively male qualifications and use male pronouns to describe men who serve as pastors in a church. And he makes it very clear in his discussion that this is not just some cultural mandate or some uh, command that applies only to the church at Ephesus, but this goes all the way back to the order of creation and then how the fall unfolded, and he doesn't leave it there. He then reminds women of a higher, different calling that God has given to them in the raising and the nurturing of children. Not to mention, God would not want a woman to be a pastor because men, A, are visually oriented. And when you have especially young Christians who are trying to get a hold of their thought life, you put a woman on the platform week after week, instead of it helping them, you help destroy them. Now, it's not a small task in God's arena to raise godly children. It's a very important task, and it's not a matter of men being better and that women are less equal. We are equal as men and women, but God has given us different roles. And because we have ignored these roles, the church in America is being harmed. We just recently made a very difficult decision and removing focus on the family from our radio broadcast after 30 years. Not to be confused with family talk that Dr. James Dobson is a part of. He's no longer associated with focus on the family. But one broadcast, among many others that were irking me, but one just crossed the line. They had a pastor from a Washington, D.C. church who has numerous satellite campuses where women are the pastors. And women are preaching during the week when he's not live streaming. And he has set before those young men and women, largely college and graduate students, a model that is antithetical to the New Testament. Add to that, he has LGBTQ plus support groups for people who have chosen this lifestyle. And Focus has him on for his new book on what godly men look like. Well, godly men, among other things, understand what their role is and how it is different from the role of a woman. And so I call them and I dialogue with them because many of you have asked, so I'm answering now. So I hope I'll only be, have to answer it once. I dialogue with them and I, I said, look, you're missing the main point. He said, well, what's wrong with women in the workplace? I said, listen, our church grows largely by conversion, and we have many women who come who are professional women, and they are just part of the culture, and it takes time for them to grow, and they have many made moral financial commitments that cannot easily be unraced, erased, but we cannot change what God has said, and you cannot, if your focus is on the family, change and stop teaching what God has said. I said, let me ask you a simple question. Forget the Bible for a moment. I said to the director of their programming, what kind of a home would you rather have been raised in? A home where your mother dropped you off every morning at 7.30 and picked you up at 4.30 or 5 from the daycare, or a home where she was with you all day long? He said, obviously, the latter. 
I said, that is God's ideal. And we are not to contradict what God has plainly said and taught in his word. My wife often reminds the women of this church that Mary did not put Jesus in some daycare center. She shaped his life. And a woman being at home and shaping that life is a woman of real significance in spite of what the culture is saying. And so Paul has just dealt with the role of women in the local assembly. They they are not to usurp the role that God has given to men to be pastors. And in this particular section of Scripture, the focus is not so much on what elders are to do as much as it is on what they are to be. Now, don't tune me out this morning because some of you are already thinking, well, I'll never be an elder. I'm not qualified to be. Or uh, I'm a woman, so I can't be an elder. So what does this have to do with me? Everything. Because all Scripture is inspired by God and is God-breathed and it is profitable. And these lists of qualifications are what God needs in all of us. And there are many expressions of leadership in the church outside of the two offices of of deacon and elder. We need ABF leaders. We need Awana leaders. We need leaders who will minister to our children, who will minister to women. We need leaders in every facet and realm of this local assembly. And being a leader is more than just getting out in front and shouting loudly. Being a leader is calling people to biblical standards and then modeling that and encouraging them to follow you. Yesterday, a new candidate announced himself for the candidacy of President of the United States, and I listened to his short little speech. And in the opening words, he said, I want to guard women's protective uh, reproductive rights, i.e., I want to murder little babies in the womb. Then he goes on to say, I want um, people to be able to love whoever they want to love, i.e., I want to affirm what God calls wicked, an abomination, the LGBTQ rights in lifestyle. He said, I want every American to have free health care, i.e., you're going to bankrupt the nation." There are people who make promises who say things that are so silly and so ridiculous and in some cases so wicked that people just blindly follow. And so we need Christian leaders, men and women of God, who will lead by examples based on the dictates of of Scripture. For if we do not do that, the Bible says that God's people will be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We need leaders. And you may be the leader of your children in your home. You need to meet these qualifications. We've always needed leaders, and there's always been a lack of them because there are people who fail to believe God. I cannot help but remember this week, Joshua and Caleb, their ministry is recorded in Numbers chapter 13. Moses said, "'Send out for yourselves men "'so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. God, if you remember, promised the Hebrew people 
that the land was theirs. Now, people today are contending that. They say, well, the Jewish people stole it from the Canaanites like the Americans stole this land from the Indians, and that's the analogy they make. Well, I don't want to get into the American Indians, but let me talk about the Hebrews for a moment. The Canaanites were a wicked people. There were people who boiled to death their own little babies and sacrificed them in fire sacrifices. And God told Abraham that the Jewish people would be in bondage for 400 years until the iniquity of the Canaanites was full. God gave the Canaanites 400 years to repent. And in his kesed, in his mercy, he waited and he waited and waited. And then he said, Israel, this land is your land. And they went in and they conquered that land. Of course, you also know that there came a time, 70 AD, 135 AD, where ultimately the Jews were expelled from the land. But it was their land. Listen, when the Nazis came in and stole the Jewish synagogues and burned Jewish homes, that was still their property. When the communists under the Soviets closed churches and made them museums and robbed them of their homes, that was still their homes. And it is still their land because God promised them that land. And he told them to go in and to spy out the land, not to see if they could take it, but how they would take it. And so the 12 spies came back from the 12 respective tribes, and they say to the people, it's just like God said it would be. We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. There were also the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. But only two of those 12 proved to be real leaders, Joshua and Caleb, who did not go with the majority report, but chose to believe what God had promised. They said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. The 10 said, we're sorry, children of Israel, the dream is over. But Joshua and Caleb said, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Joshua and Caleb were saying, the dream is not over. Our God is a big God, and God has promised the land to us, and we need to go in faith, and we need to take the land. That's what you call leadership. And that's why God should, could say of Caleb, but my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Two men who were different, two men above the age of 20, the only two 40 years later who were able to enter into the promised men. They were real men, they were real leaders, and that's what we need today. And the Apostle Paul wants us to understand what that really looks like.
We need leaders on our university campuses. We need real leaders in our government. We need real leaders in our military, in our police forces, and certainly in our churches. So let's look at some of the qualifications that God wants to build into the heart of every believer here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. And let me just say parenthetically, some of you may be first-generation Christians, I was a first-generation born-again Christian. I did not grow up in a home where I heard the plan of salvation. And you may be a first-generation Christian, but you can change the course of your family wherever you are, whatever venue you have walked into the Christian life. Now, there in your note-taking outline, you can see there are two major observations concerning the office of elder. And I suggest that maybe you jot some of these things down because all of us, need to be leaders in some expression, and many of us will be engaged in choosing leaders. First, I'd like you to notice from verse 1 some general observations about the office, some general observations about the office of elder. And he's going to underscore three general truths. The first truth is that the office of elder is to be desired. It is to be desired. We read now in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, why would Paul, the apostle, even feel compelled to make a statement like that? Well, I think among other reasons, in the first century, most Christians understood the gravity and the responsibility of leadership amongst God's people. Today, someone who sits on the board of a church or some Christian organization often does with a sense of pride and prestige, but not with a deep sense of accountability to the people and to God. And anyone who has ever read the Old Testament in the early church initially, that's all they had. They understood the weight of leadership on God's people. Take Moses, for example, because of one act of impatience, he did not go into the promised land. And God has a far higher accountability level for his people under the new covenant, which is why the apostle James can say, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we, including himself and all believers, that we will incur a stricter judgment. We're all called to teach. Some have the gift of teaching, but some fall into the office of teaching or pastor. And that's what the office of pastor largely is. It is a teaching office by which a pastor shepherds his people. In similar tone, the writer of the Hebrews said, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I take that soberingly seriously. I give an account. And so the Holy Spirit, knowing the hesitancy of some sensitive soul, not wanting to aspire to leadership in the church, affirms that it is a good thing. It is a noble thing. It is a fine work to desire the office of elder. And so number one, the office of elder is something to be desired. Number two, the office of elder is an office that involves oversight. The office of elder involves oversight. Let me read again verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. 
So this verse affirms the need for pastoral ministry by men who are set apart to oversee the local congregation. And as we will see from verse 8 onward, God also uses deacons who come alongside to help the elders pull that off. And we'll look at that a couple Sundays from now. But I want you to notice here this term overseer. In the Old English, they render it bishop, as in the Revised Standard Version. But it refers to the same office. There are only now two offices in the local church. That's why Paul, when he writes the church at Philippi, says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers. That's another term for the office of elder and deacons. There are no apostles today. So when you go by a church and the sign says, apostle so-and-so, he's really misinformed. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to have been personally selected by him. And if those things were true, then a third truth would be evident. You would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. There are no apostles today, but there are two remaining offices, the office of overseer and the office of deacon. The word overseer translates the word episkopos, and so we get our word episcopalian. And the word elder, referring to the same office, is the Greek word presbyteros, and so we get our word presbyterian. This word is also, again, translated as bishop, but it's referring to the same office. Now, that's important. Let me give you some examples where the word is used interchangeably, okay? Acts 20, again, I already referenced it a moment ago. Paul has gathered the elders together on a beach. He asked them to come 30 miles to meet him on the shore there so he doesn't have to take the time to go back and forth to Ephesus. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So these elders in the same breath are called overseers to shepherd. There it's a verb, to pastor you could render it. The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Likewise, in the book of Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. So the elder and the overseer, or again in some translations, bishop, it's referring to the same office. In similar terminology, Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, therefore I exhort the elders among you, shepherd or pastor, the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So the apostle Peter addresses the presbyters, the elders in verse 1, and then in verse 2, he tells them to take oversight, episcopuntos, the verbal form. The term bishop, elder, overseer, pastor refers to the same office. You say, why is that important? Because as history progressed in the church, another office developed, the office of what we might call super elder or bishop. It comes about four centuries after the ascension of Christ. And this super elder, like we have today, we typically refer to them as bishops, is over large regions, usually multiple states in the United States. And they move pastors around, and, and they really, in essence, 
right against local autonomy of a church. Now, it is true in Jerusalem because they didn't have church buildings. They had elders, but they had people scattered all around Jerusalem and even outside of Jerusalem. One church, many locations, we might say. But there was not an office above the local assembly. And so just recently, United Methodists were asked to pray for their bishops who are doing an in-depth study that will be revealed next year from the Book of Discipline, which is actually not a bad book. It's a, a written expression of how Methodists should function in a lot of realms. I wouldn't agree with it all, but many things I would because it's biblically based. And they're talking about rewriting the Book of Discipline in order to ordain and allow into the membership LGBTQ plus people. And so they're asking the people to pray for the bishops who will make this decision. Listen, there's nothing to pray about. God has spoken and he has not stuttered. But we do not have these super elders in the early church known as bishops like we do today. Listen, Peter in 1 Peter 5, while all elders are not apostles, all apostles are elders. They're shepherds, they're pastors. And so Peter exhorts the elder as, his, as a fellow elder. If Peter was the first pope, he didn't know anything about it. So you don't have these exalted positions like we have today, and that's important. So a elder is to exercise oversight. He bishops the people, to put it in verbal, verbal form. He is one who guides the affairs and shepherds the local assembly of people. And in Titus chapter 1, the elders are called stewards. Now, we don't typically think of the term stewardship in terms of elders. We think of stewardship of my time and my money and my body, and those are all legitimate expressions of stewardship, but the Bible refers to the elders as stewards of God's church. Listen, Community Bible Church doesn't belong to me and the elders. It belongs to Jesus Christ. He purchased it with his own blood. He is the chief shepherd, and we are under-shepherds, but as under-shepherds, we are stewards, and with stewardship, it involves accountability. We are to be examples to the flock. Well, what does that look like? How does an elder become an example to the flock? Well, listen to what Paul says in Acts 20, beginning in verse 18. And when they had come to him, that is the elders from Ephesus, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house. Now, please note the next verse. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If the elders were to follow the Apostle Paul's example, then among other things that they would do is they would preach the gospel. They would seek to win people to Jesus Christ. I cannot, as an elder of the church, exhort you to go out and try to um, win people to the Savior if I'm not doing it. That would be sheer hypocrisy. And yet, more often than I care to, I will speak to pastors 
who will call me via my radio ministry or on one particular seminary where there's a whole group of them listening through the podcast, and I will ask them, when was the last time you shared your faith? And very often they cannot remember. How can you lead by example as an elder if you're not engaged in doing the work of an evangelist? Also, being an example to the flock is to feed the flock. And when you fix a good meal, it takes time. And you cannot wing it in the pulpit and just pull it together and preach a lot of old, dusty sermons. It must be fresh. It must come through you so that you can bring it to the people. And so Peter says, feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. You know, the word whole means it means everything. The things that you like to preach and the things that are difficult to preach. What I've already said this morning about women, many pastors are afraid to say. And here I was with hundreds of college students in Israel, and, you, and some graduate students, and you ask the average college student, woman count what her plans are, and some of them incurred incredible debt in their graduate programs and undergraduate programs. I had a couple in my office I wanted to marry a few years ago, and they had $170,000 in school debt between the two of them. Just, it's a mountain of debt. And what if God calls you to have a baby? Oh, I guess I just have to put this child in a daycare center because I have all these moral obligations. Look, I get it. That's where most people come into this church. And I don't throw rocks at them, but I'm going to help them. And I'm going to teach God's standard. And I tell these young women when they uh, come in for their senior appointments, guard the amount of debt that you take on. Because if God blesses you in the next five to seven years with a husband and you get married and, and then you have children, which is what God wants to give you, it's a gift from God, then you ought to be able to raise them. So you have to preach the whole counsel. Look, a lot of ministries, you can hear a lot about what the pastor is like, not by what he says, but what he doesn't say. Many of the topics that he would not touch with a 10-foot pole, you cannot do that. Also, in leading by example, is you guard the flock from false doctrine. Paul said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. They'll come in from the outside, not sparing the flock, and also among you. Why? Because in every church, there are false believers. Jesus said that. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing. And so sometimes to identify the wolves, you have to call them by name. And people will go, how can you say that about so-and-so? And I get the letters. And then maybe five years go back and they say, you were right on Rob Bell, Pastor. Yeah, you, you were right on him. He was a heretic. But you have to name them. You've got to guard them sometimes from innocent young little lambs. God's called us 
to exercise oversight. And sometimes that means church discipline. And when you discipline an errant believer and you do it with a sense of humility, watching for yourself, lest you too be tempted, that is you develop an attitude that I could never do what I have to confront this person on, then you're tempting the devil to tempt you. But when you exercise church discipline, something that has become almost unheard of in the modern church, you're called divisive and harsh and unloving. Paul says to Timothy, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honors. One of the things an elder does is he rules. That's why Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That doesn't sound very American. That doesn't sound very much of a democracy. Well, the church is not a democracy. It's a theocracy under the authority of God's word as he raises up under shepherds to teach that word. But do you know how a lot of churches are led today? They get a business meeting and the pastor stands up in front of the congregation. He says, all you sheep who want to graze over here, you say, bah. And all you sheep who want to graze over here, you say, bah. And he counts the bahs over here and the bahs over here. And that's how he leads. That's not leadership. Listen, when you run a church like that, in every assembly, one, you have unbelievers, because Jesus said the wheat and the tare would be mixed together into the time of the harvest. In every church, and this is no exception, there are some people here today who know all the right words who are members, but they're lost. There are other people who come into the fellowship who maybe have been Christians for years, but they've been stunted in their spiritual growth. They're immature. Some are brand new Christians, and so they haven't had time to grow. Others are carnal Christians because they've broken fellowship with God. And then you have a fifth group of mature Christians, and you bring them all together, and you give them all an equal vote. You have a formula for disaster. And so many churches that have split and started a new church, it was not out of this passion to plant a new church in a community that needed. It's a bunch of people who couldn't get along with each other. And one of the reasons that you, that was fostered is because they were leading in a less than biblical way. So we learn here that the office of elder is to be desired. We learn also that an elder is to exercise oversight. Third, the office of elder is an office that involves work. It involves work. Let me read again verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The word work here is the Greek word ergu. We get our word energy from it. It refers to blood, sweat, and labor. And the office of elder is not a mere honor to be enjoyed. If you live it out, it is hard, hard work if you're going to do your job well. I was, have been on a number of elder boards since I became a Christian. And the ones that function best are those who are not lazy. Those who are, are not afraid to do the work. Listen, when you are an elder, you're first dealing with the process of evangelizing. Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer for those who would believe in me through their message. In addition, you're feeding the flock. You're caring for the sheep that sometimes bleat, that are hard to care for, some who are strained, some who need discipline. It just spells hard work. That's what an elder has to do if he's engaged with the people. And they deserve nothing but our best. 
because they are the sheep for whom Christ died. Now, when we consider this office in a serious way, understand it's not something we should shy away from. It is a fine work. It is a noble work. It's not an easy work, but it's a good work. It's a rewarding work. It's a fine work, but it is hard work. Now, those are some general observations. Now, beginning in verses 2 through 7, he gives us some specific qualifications. 15, there's actually 22 listed in the New Testament, but 15 that are found right here in this text of Scripture. Paul lists 15 qualities that a man must possess in order to qualify for the office of overseer. And in verses 2 and 3, he deals with personal qualifications. Then in verses 4 and 5, he deals with their domestic qualifications. And then in verses uh, 6 and 7, with the relational qualifications. So let's first think about the elder's personal qualifications, his personal qualifications. We read here in verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. Please note, Paul is not talking about something that is optional. Rather, he's talking about something that is essential. He's not talking about something that's just nice. He's talking about something that is necessary. He must be above reproach. The New King James says blameless. The LEB says irreproachable. The Phillips renders it a blameless reputation. To be blameless or above reproach does not mean that you're perfect, but it does mean that you are well thought of. The New Testament never sets forth a model of perfection, but it does set forth a model of progression. And so the question all of us need to ask is, where am I? In what direction am I moving? To those who know you best this morning, who are closest to you, do they see you making progress and growth in your life? Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them. Why? So that your progress may be evident to all. Am I making progress in my walk with Christ? If one is to serve in the office of elder, he must be above reproach. It's a Greek word that means nothing to take hold of him on. People can't point the finger and say, well, he says this all the time, but he lives this way all the time. The Living Bible paraphrases it, a good man whose life cannot be spoken against. Second, in the personal realm, he says, and an elder must be the husband of one wife. The Greek New Testament literally reads, a one-woman man. And as simple as that phrase may seem, a lot of ink has been spilled on it, especially in the last hundred years, as to its meaning. And there are about five or six different positions, but only one is right. So let me unfold the various positions. Roman Catholics obviously teach celibacy. Whether you're a priest or a bishop or a cardinal or the pope, they teach celibacy. So how do you deal with the qualifications for church eldership when he says, for instance, that he must be the husband of one wife? They spiritualize the text. They say that his wife is the church and that a priest throughout his lifetime, so to speak, is married to the church. And then you have to spiritualize the words that follow. The household is the man's church, and the children are the people in this congregation. That violates every rule of basic Greek grammar. And when you spiritualize a Bible verse like that, you can make the Bible mean just about anything you want it to mean, so you can kick that one out immediately. Second, 
the husband of one wife, some take as a requirement to be married, that only married people can fill this office and that therefore single men are disqualified. Now, certainly you would expect the Apostle Paul to address this office, especially as it related to married men, because God calls most people in this life to be married. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. God assumes most people will be married. But there is an exception that Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a gift that God gives to some people. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not so much something that God does through you as he does to you. And Paul was a single man his whole life, as was, and he was an elder. He was a fellow elder. And the Lord Jesus, who is the chief shepherd, the chief elder, he was single his whole life. So obviously, it cannot be a prohibition against a single man serving in this office. A third position that is somewhat popular, because you can skirt away from the issue that is very difficult to speak to that I'll address in a moment, is they say that this qualification, the husband of one wife, refers to one wife at a time that bigamists, that is someone who has two wives, or polygamists, someone who has three or more wives, are disqualified. Listen, if someone were a bigamist or a polygamist today, that would not be a litmus test that would disqualify them from the offer, office of elder. That would be proof positive that they were unregenerate, and if they were members of your church, that they needed to be disciplined and put out. Listen, in the first century, even under Roman law, bigamy and polygamy was prohibited. And it still is in the United States, but I'm not sure for how long. I mean, if you can say that two women can marry each other and two men can marry each other, then why can't you say that I feel led to have five wives? We're just a short step away from there, believe me. Such an interpretation, a one-woman man would indeed be a disqualified, would would not, would qualify someone for discipline not to be an elder. Another viewpoint, and this has been very, very popular, is that a person has been married only once, only once. And I take this viewpoint. It's the viewpoint for 1,900 years of church history. But within that viewpoint, there are two viewpoints, a more restrictive only once kind of viewpoint and a less restrictive. Let me explain. The more restrictive viewpoint says married only once such that a man who is widowed and is remarried can no longer be an elder in a local church. And I had a professor at Dallas Seminary. Actually, he would come and lecture. He was no longer a professor, but he had been for 30 years there. And he taught many of the people you've heard on the radio through the decades. And his wife died, and he married again. And he was a great expositor. I just think he was missed it on this issue. And he married again, so he stepped down from being the pastor of a church. Never stopped teaching the Bible, but stepped down as being the pastor of his local assembly. Now, the position is... um, I suppose, really simplifies things because it it covers everything. A man who's uh, been divorced and remarried, he wouldn't fit in the option. Someone whose wife had died, it just really simplifies it. 
But I don't think that is in view, and I'll tell you why, because of what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9. Let me read it to you. He's addressing widows in the church. He says, let a widow be put on the list. There was a list they had in the first century church of how you dealt with widows. And widows were women who had lost their husband, but not everyone who had lost their husband deserved the church's support. And so he says, let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. By the way, if you want to know what an old woman is in the Bible, it's 60 years and above. That's what Paul teaches in this epistle. So some of you, if you're wondering, you're 60, you're an old woman. And by the way, I'm an old man, all right? If she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Now, it's the opposite phrase, not a one-woman man, but literally a a one-man woman. And Paul, therefore, in this epistle, if you know it, he exhorts the younger widows to remarry. Why were many younger women widowed? Because their husbands were killed for the cause of Christ. And so he said, it's okay. Remarry. It's an okay thing. And I don't think in exhorting them to do that, he was later disqualifying them late in life, 60 and above, of being short on this list. The more restricted view says, married only once, and it's honorable to the weight that Paul puts on the word one. The less restricted view, which is what I take, and it is what most people took for the first 1900 years of church history is that a person who was divorced and remarried could not serve in the office of elder or deacon. Now, let me explain what that means and what it does not mean. Understand that divorced people are not second-class people in the kingdom of God. And because a divorced man cannot serve as an elder or a deacon, neither does it mean that his reward in heaven is less. If that were true, then even if everyone in this church were qualified and met all of the qualifications for an elder, only a handful in a lifetime are still going to be elders, and that doesn't mean your reward is less. In fact, divorced people can serve in any capacity in the local church except the office of elder or deacon. They can be Sunday school teachers, they can be missionaries, they can be evangelists, they can be on our church staff. They can serve in any capacity, but they cannot be a pastor or a deacon if they have been divorced. Why? Because God is against them? No. Listen, if I were on my third or fourth marriage, and then I came to Christ, and I began to mature in my relationship, and I stand in this pulpit week after week, thus saith the Lord, here's how you have a good marriage, it wouldn't be all that believable, especially if I were on my fourth. And I meet a lot of people because we grow, again, largely by conversion, and over half of us are on second, some people third marriages. Doesn't mean they're less of a person. Has nothing to do with whether it happened before or after they became a Christian. What is God trying to do? He's trying to put some salt back into the body of Christ. He's trying to protect people. Some of you have gone down the road of divorce and you know how painful it is. Some of you were involved in adultery and you had a relationship and you dumped your husband or your wife and some of you, they did it to you and they divorced you against your will. And you know how hurtful it is. 
God wants to protect his people from that hurt, and he wants to protect the children from that hurt, and so he wants to model the ideal when it comes to the only two remaining offices, the office of elder or deacon. Now, it's become popular in our day, especially amongst young pastors, that the husband of one wife means a non-flirtatious kind of man, that he's kind of a one-woman man in his heart, even if he's been married two or three times. Well, listen, a pastor who is a flirt breaks some of the qualifications that are going to follow on this list. And a pastor who's always trying to hug the sisters or has lust reigning in his heart, he's not qualified to be an elder. But that's not what this text is referring to. God is dealing with salt and light in the pulpit to protect the next generation. Listen, Paul preached in a day when divorce was widespread, much like it is in our day. And for 1,900 years, there was almost one unanimous position, and that is that a man who had been divorced could not serve in the office. And all the church fathers held to that position, the early and the late, and they wrote after the apostles. They were taught by the apostles. And they would have been closest to the apostles in how they would have understood this text. Let's move on. He then mentions three qualifications, temperate, prudent, and respectable. They're kind of linked together. Temperate means clear-headed. He's not a self-indulgent kind of person. One translation says sober-minded, another says stable. That is, it speaks of a person who's able to say no with his mind when his emotions and his body wants to say yes. A temperate person is a person who's not given to extremes, but he, he's self-controlled. He has a sense of balance in his life. Then he adds prudent. The HCSB says sensible. The King James says sober. It refers to a person who's both thoughtful and he is wise. It refers to a person who knows how to flesh out the truth of the Bible in everyday experience. The third word is the word respectable. The New King James says of good behavior. The RSV says dignified. It's the word cosmos. It refers to something that is well-ordered, well-arranged. And so the man's outward behavior expresses an inward reality that his life is in order. Really, these three words, in one sense, all express self-control of one form or another. Then he moves to another qualification. Notice, hospitable. He's referring to a leader who has an open heart in an open home. He is one who cares for the needs of his people, and he tries to meet those needs. Then he no notice what he lists next, able to teach. Now, it doesn't mean teachable. Listen, I always look for someone who has a heart for God and a teachable attitude. If you can't teach someone something, they're doomed. But he's not talking about teachable. He says able to teach. He's not even saying someone who serves in the office of elder must have the gift of teaching because not all of them do. But he's really referring here to someone as in the parallel text in Titus 1 who's sound in his doctrine. And so in distinguishing someone who might actually teach from the pulpit and an elder who's just able to teach, he'll say in 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, i.e., not every elder is involved in preaching and teaching. 
but every elder must be mature enough that he's apt to teach. It's an expression of maturity, as Hebrews 5 underscores. For though by this time you, meaning you all, everyone in the congregation he's writing to, ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Any man who is so weak in his knowledge of Scripture such that he cannot answer basic questions is not qualified to be an elder. Now, this is a qualification that sets itself apart for an elder, not necessarily for a deacon, but certainly for an elder. Look at the next qualification in verse 3, not addicted to wine. Literally, the Greek word means one who sits alongside of wine. Paul is saying when you see a man who continually sits alongside a glass of wine, you're looking at a person who's not qualified to be a church leader. Now, this verse does not teach total abstinence, and you would certainly not expect Paul to teach that in the first century culture. I have never taught total abstinence. By the way, I will deal with this in depth when we come to deacons, because he repeats it. So, fasten your pew belts. You may not want to come that Sunday. (laughs) But God does forbid drunkenness. God does forbid strong drink, the exception being to a dying, despairing man. They typically mix their wine, five parts water to one part wine. Why? Because it was a purifier. Wine, strong drink, was used to heal cuts, as in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He poured wine on his cut. It was a disinfectant. It was mixed with water. And so Paul says to Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but add a little wine. Why? Because it killed the bacteria. Listen, A year ago, last May, I was in a Jewish home, and they were very careful at that Sabbath meal not to use strong drink. They had wine that was 2%. You know what most of the wine is in America? 18 to 18% that you buy on the shelf. A Jew would consider that strong drink, an observant Jew. And they didn't want to do it. They they have what they call sweet wine, it's about 2%. This past Friday, I was in a Jewish home, and what did they have? They had grape juice. Why? Because they did not want to use strong drink. They know that a buzzed mind is a drunk mind. The law's got it more clearly than a lot of Christians do today. Then he says, an overseer must not be pugnacious. One translation says, not a bully, not violent. A person who wants to fight back or does fight back is certainly not someone who's qualified to be an elder. Someone who wants to hit you or might hit you, he shouldn't be a leader in the church. Not a striker. By contrast, Paul says he is to be gentle. Gentleness refers to strength that is under control. It's used in the first century of a horse that has been broken. He's powerful, he's strong, but he is tamed. He is uncontentious, he is peaceable. These are all important qualifications. Then he adds, notice, free from the love of money. A man who is in the ministry, who is not willing to start by giving 10% of his income to the Lord, shouldn't be in the ministry. He shouldn't be an elder. He shouldn't be a deacon. Now, I know there's been a vicious rumor that has floated in our community for 20 years that if you become a member of Community Bible Church, we're going to ask for your W-2 forms to make sure you tithe. You know, I'd hate to meet God and spread that kind of slander against His people. 
But I'll tell you, we do ask an elder, a deacon, without ever looking at his W-2s, do you tithe? That is, do you give at least 10% of your income? And if he doesn't, how can I ask you to give a tithe if I don't? That is sheer hypocrisy. Free from the love of money. One expression that you are free from the love of money is you start by tithing. Look, God knows that I would pay to do what I do. And I'm grateful for the fact that you meet my needs, but you don't really pay my salary. God does. You give it to God, and then he gives it to me because, you see, I don't work for you. I work for the Lord, and that's an important thing you've got to understand, pastors who are listening to me today. You don't work for that congregation. You serve them, but you ultimately work for the living God. He is the one whom you serve. Let the elders who rule be worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Some elders... They are not paid elders. Some elders who are set apart to teach and to preach the Word of God, they earn their living from the gospel. They receive double honor, not just the honor that comes with the office, but the honor that comes with a paycheck. But if a man is in the ministry for the money, he is in the wrong place. So you know how a lot of these slick guys deal with it? They teach prosperity theology because they have a love of money in their hearts, and they cover it over with their prosperity theology. Now, that's the elder's personal qualifications. Let's talk about his domestic qualifications. The elder's domestic qualifications, now beginning in verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Now, there's no parentheses in the Greek New Testament, but the Greek had a grammatical way when they wanted to say something parenthetical. So then parenthetically, he adds, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, if a man cannot function successfully in a limited realm, then don't broaden that realm. If he cannot make his Christianity work in his home, then don't export his Christianity into the local church. Paul is saying when you look for leaders in the church, you don't simply ask, is this person a surgeon? Is this person a lawyer? Is this person a businessman who can get things done? How many letters does he have after his name? Can he rub shoulders with the social elite? No, the question you ask is, what does his family look like? Because if he can't make it work in his family, then he's not qualified to, to attempt to make it to work in the church. Now, beyond the personal and domestic qualifications, now he deals with the elder's relational qualifications, his relational qualifications. And he looks at these, as he looks at these qualifications, first he speaks to the, his relationship to God and then to his fellow man. Look at verse 6. And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. A new convert, a neophyton. We get our word in English, a neophyte, a novice. Literally, the Greek word means not someone newly planted. Now, I was a young man, a year in the faith, and God began to put in my heart the desire to go into the ministry. But that did not make me qualified to go into the ministry. It was good I had the desire, 
but it didn't make me qualified. Not a new convert. If you put someone who has not matured spiritually enough in a position of leadership, it will go to his head. You know, when someone comes to me in the hallway and they say, oh, Pastor, that was a really good sermon, and I don't want to build your ego, and goodness. You think after 40 years, 40 years last month I've been in the ministry? Listen, if I haven't worked through that problem, I shouldn't be in the ministry. Not a neophyte, not someone newly planted. Why? Because it will lead to pride. And pride is what made the devil the devil. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. He must have a good reputation, a good testimony. The Net Bible says he must be well thought of with those outside the church. Now, he's not referring to those who dislike you as a pastor because you're shining the light and rubbing the salt. Listen, Jesus said, if all men speak well of you, so they spoke of the false prophets who went before you. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I know as a pastor, I am going to be slandered. But what he is talking about, a good reputation with those outside the church, things like he pays his bills on time. You know, when I hire a staff member, I ask if I can do a a credit check and if they'll give me their social security number. Because if they don't pay their bills on time, they have no business being a leader in the church. Is he a man of honesty? Is he a man of integrity? Does his handshake, does his word mean something? Sometimes non-Christians who are slanderous of pastors, they're really not being slanderous, they're just being truthful. The guy's a crook. And what they're saying is true. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So having made those general observations and having given some specific qualifications, let me close with three realistic applications. Three principles that apply certainly to the office of elder, but many other expressions of leadership in the New, church, New Testament church. Number one, we must be careful in our selection. We need to be careful in our selection. Selecting an elder in the local assembly is not a small thing. It's a very important thing. And one of the reasons so many local churches today are flawed and deeply divided is because they have the wrong people leading the assembly. A church will stand or fall on its leadership. And oftentimes, a church in selecting leaders is nothing more than a popularity contest. Someone handed me a bulletin from a church, and on the back of the bulletin said, here's every man over the age of 18, put a check to the name, next to the name of the person you would like to be a deacon, and whoever gets the most checks, the highest six, become the next six elders. I mean, uh, deacons. That's stupid. That's not even close to what God says that we'll look at two weeks from today, something different next week. It's not even close of what a deacon is supposed to be. For others, it's a political thing. Oh, you know, he's, he's really famous in the community. We need to get him. Or he's wealthy. Or he gives a lot of money. Those are not qualifications. It's not whether he's educated or uneducated, rich or poor. 
It's an issue, does he meet the qualifications that God gives? So we must be careful in our selection. Second, we must be realistic in our appraisal. We must be realistic in our appraisal. Listen, no one is perfect except God. We're all sinners. We're all living in a fallen world. None but Christ can live up 100% of the time to every qualification on this list. And no pastor who's worth his salt ever feels like he's all that he wants to be. Listen, you need to pray for me and you need to pray for our elders. God tells you to do that. If you crash in your Christian life, it's bad. But the people you affect is somewhat limited. If a pastor goes down, if I were to fall, say, morally, the impact would be huge. I tell young pastors all the time, you have a target painted on your back. Pray for your elders. We've only had to replace elders a few times, some who have died, some who have moved away to another state. But it's not a small thing. That brings me to the third point. We must be sensitive to God's leading. We must be sensitive to God's leading. I just mentioned I've just finished my 40th year in full-time ministry. I've learned very often that the qualified people are not the most vocal people. You need to be sensitive to God's leading. When I'm engaged in the process of finding an elder, there's a lot of time in prayer and fasting. I don't take it flippantly. By God's grace, we've always found the right replacements. And let me just say to those of you who are listening online, if you have an elder who is a godly pastor, don't harass him. Follow him, esteem him, pray for him, respect him as the Scripture commands. Now, these qualities that we are looking at today are impossible for anyone in this room to achieve apart from having a birth from above. You must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. Pay attention. Don't let your mind wander. Someone needs to hear, and your distraction is keeping them from doing it. If you do not know that you know that you know that heaven is your home, you've got to settle that. Because one of these days, you are going to die, or Jesus' trumpet is going to be sound, and he is going to judge the living and the dead, and it will be too late to make a decision. You must be born again, and you can only be born again by bringing your sin to Christ. You must call it wrong. You must be willing for God to forgive it and to change it, and he can only do it on one basis, the basis of the cross. We sang this morning, Matt led us in a song, on the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus alone saves you through the death and resurrection, or he will not save you at all. Had a man in my yard yesterday. How sure are you? 95%. What would you have to do to be 100? And he gave me his list. It will not make it. You must come bankrupt. You must come helpless. You must put your faith where God puts your sin on Jesus. Now listen, if you've done that, you need a local assembly in which 
you have elders that you are willing to submit to. You say, I don't like to submit. We are all called to submit in some form, in some way, in some expression. And God gathers his sheep into local flocks. They're called the church. And he puts elders over you for your protection and to guide you and to give you opportunity to serve God's people. You need a local church. And if not this church, then find another church, but don't float. And don't deceive yourself to thinking that you're right in the center of God's will, where year after year after year you can float and not make a commitment. That's sin. Call it what God calls it. If you know Christ, we welcome you this morning. If you don't know him, I invite you to him this morning. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He receives sinful men, and he'll receive you. Now, our Father, I thank you this morning that you've not left your church without direction, but you've given your people sound, solid instruction for us to renew our minds with, that your church might operate in a way that's pleasing and honorable to your Son. I pray today for someone within the sound of my voice who is unsure of their salvation, thank you that we can come on the basis of your promise and your work that Jesus died and was raised and you can say whosoever will may come. Thank you that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Father, help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, I pray for myself and for the elders of this church that you would give us skillful hands in shepherding the flock. That you would give us the wisdom from above because we ask you for it today. That you would guard and protect our hearts from the evil one who would want to bring any of us down. That we might walk in total dependence upon you, knowing that without you we cannot do anything. Help us to love and to shepherd these people that you've entrusted to us. They're souls to which someday we will give an account. And Father, help those who know you to be a part of a Bible-believing local church. Help them to understand how important that is. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation today. And if you've received Christ today, recent months, you've never made it public, I'm going to ask you to leave your seat and come to this front row. Everyone that Jesus ever called, he called publicly. Jesus taught that if you knew him on the inside, you'd be unashamed of him on the outside. I make no apology for an invitational church. Thank you, brother, you come here. Others of you, you need to come. You need to step out this morning. Some of you need a local assembly in which you can be shepherded and encouraged. This invitation is for you. Some of you have not taken the first step and been baptized. I want to invite you to come. So Matt's going to lead us. We're going to sing this hymn as an expression of worship to God. But some of you, your worship needs to be expressed on your feet today. And so I'm going to ask you to leave and meet me now here in the front. Matt, would you lead us?